before we start this episode, just a really quick mention from the people who pay our bills, HubSpot. So here's the question. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Sometimes, actually. Yeah, I'm thinking something like Lucky Charms, Candy Floss, some kind of soup. Something horny. Well, actually, we don't know. But what we do know is that 20% of unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. Yes, HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales software and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big on your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. Yeah, there is an ocean of uncried male tears sitting out there. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, where we help you simplify the science of people. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist and welcome back. For our regular listeners at this point, you might be thinking, where's Al? Where's your your co-host, your partner, your husband? Um, he is appearing in this episode but this episode is a little bit different to what we've put out previously as you may well know our last couple of episodes have focused on burnout and one of the discussions we had in those episodes is that burnout doesn't discriminate against age role social background race nationality or gender burnout is a human issue mental health is a human issue And as part of this series, Al interviewed Jim Young, who is a coach specializing in helping men and organizations defeat burnout. We had intended for Jim to form part of our burnout panel that you would have heard from on our last couple of episodes. And as part of the prep, I listened back to the interviews. And one evening I was making dinner and I thought, I'll listen to Al and Jim. I'll do some multitasking. Three minutes into this interview, I stopped what I was doing, sat down on the sofa and I listened to this interview end to end. It was like no conversation I'd heard before. Two 40-something men talking about men's mental health and to pull a quote from his conversation the ocean of uncried male tears out there. So yeah, this conversation stopped me in my tracks. And I spoke to Al about making this a standalone episode. It felt like a message that deserved its own space. I'd be lying though if there wasn't a part of me that was slightly uncomfortable with it. I'm a woman. I'm a feminist. I'm passionate about equality. And the last few years seem to have been a lot of attack on women's rights. 2016, the, the presidential election in the US, I will always remember those images of of Hillary Clinton being stalked by by Donald Trump in the in the, the live debates, the pussy grabbing headlines that we saw. And that was a successful presidential campaign. Then last year, the rollback of Wade and Roe, restricting access to abortion in the US and potentially devastating implications for women's health. And then in the UK, probably the most high profile story recently was the the shocking story of Sarah Everend, um, who if you aren't aware, she's a a 33-year-old woman who was walking home and was kidnapped, raped and murdered by Wayne Cousins, who was a serving police officer in the London Metropolitan Police. Really shocking and really brought into focus the ongoing fight to stop violence against women and girls. So yeah, I did wonder, will we be questioned for promoting the male voice? Will we get eye rolls for giving a platform to a voice that is already the loudest in our society? 
As a psychologist, and I have experience in, in suicide prevention, I know the statistics. I know that the data shows us that women experience mental health challenges more than men. I also know that's a lie. Because what those statistics are showing us is women are more likely to come forward, discuss their mental health challenges, and be diagnosed. The truth is the situation is that if we look at statistics more broadly, and these statistics are from the UK, but it's a similar picture across the world, men's mental and physical health is unacceptably poor. So the lie in the statistics is that women suffer more with mental health challenges. And the truth is that men are equally afflicted, but feel less able to talk about it. There are many different studies out there that will show you similar results. I was reading one from the Priory, uh, which undertook a survey of a thousand men. They found that 70% of men polled had suffered with common mental health symptoms, such as anxiety, stress or depression. But only 40% of men had ever spoken about it to anyone. 29% said they were too embarrassed to speak about it. 20% said there's a negative stigma around mental health in men. And 40% of men polled said it would take thoughts of suicide or self-harm to compel them to seek professional help. So yeah, the truth is that, that human rights are an important issue and human rights against women, people of colour and other minorities have been under attack over the last few years. The truth is also that male mental health is a significant issue within our society. And I don't believe that male mental health and equal rights need to be conversations that are mutually exclusive. They can happen, happen simultaneously. Equality starts with compassion. And compassion for me starts with tuning in to other people in an open and kind way. So that's what I'd ask you to do as we listen to Alan Jim. And remember, you know, their, their husbands, their fathers, their sons, brothers, bosses, business partners, friends, they're human. My name is Jim Young. I go by The Centered Coach. And I focus on helping men and organizations defeat burnout with a bit of an interesting twist on how I do that. And I also wrote a book last year. This might tease into the twist. It's called Expansive Intimacy, How Tough Guys Defeat Burnout. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by, by you because I've been reading all your bits and pieces, some of your posts, and they're so honest. And I just, mm. I, I love that because I'm going to come on to the likes of Joe Rogan and uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson a bit later on and get your opinions on that. But before we crack into that, just so we've all, we're all on the same page, can you define burnout for us? I'll start with the clinical definition. The World Health Organization, after about 40 or 50 years of research into it, adopted it in the ICD-11 back in 2019. It's a workplace condition of unmanageable stress marked by exhaustion, cynicism, and a lack of professional efficacy. That's a lot of technical stuff. Think about chronic stress over a long period of time and what it does to you, and oftentimes framed in the, the workplace. We become grumpy, we become tired, we can't get shit done the way we used to. And that's kind of more of a layman's way of unpacking that same definition. So if if someone's listening and some of those words might have resonated a little bit, then give us some, can you give us an example perhaps from your own life? Because what's interesting is I've noticed mm. you've got on your LinkedIn actually a, a section on burnout on your actual sort of career, which is cool. Yeah. So if someone's listening and they, they're hearing those words, then what other signs are there that they're either burnt out or on the route to burnout? Uh, there's a sense of dread that I think starts to creep in. That's one of the the words that I used a lot when I 
when I look back at my own experience of burnout is this feeling of like, oh my God, I got to get up and do this again today. I got to deal with these people. I got to do this thing. I don't have the energy. I really just wish I could stay in bed or, you know, go do anything else. So it's oftentimes the, the clients who come to me talk about like they're, they're stuck in the mud or they're like moving in wet cement. It's like everything just feels hard and heavy. Tell us about an experience you've had where you felt that. So my burnout experience lasted probably seven or eight years. I don't really know how to measure it. It was in and out of different phases of burnout. And I remember uh, a period of time when I had just gotten separated from my, my then wife. I had three small kids working a full-time job to provide for my family and everything was going through the motions. I, you know, getting up in the morning, I remember living in this, this little sad dad condo that I had moved into after uh, we sold our house and just, you know, walking down the stairs in the morning, you know, kind of shuffling down these carpeted stairs as if it was walking through the Amazon forest. It was like, oh, I've got to make all the lunches and I've got to, you know, go into this job that, you know, is, is really taking a, a toll on me. And I don't see how this is ever going to change. And it was just, you know, I remember this in the middle of winter too. Like that was the worst of times I'd wake up in the morning um, and there's snow outside too. It's like, are you kidding me? I got to shovel my car out before I can even do all this stuff. Uh, So it was a really, really difficult time. Can you pinpoint one particular moment that was like the lowest moment? The lowest moment for me wasn't a stuck in the mud moment. It was a complete uh, shatter moment where I just realized that I had pushed myself beyond my edge and I was home alone. My kids were off with their mom. I had worked, you know, another long day and I got home and I was just so depleted. I had had a, I was dealing with crises at work. I was so exhausted and tired and I just fell apart. I just started sobbing I, and it was uncontrollable. Like I, I was like, am I going to ever stop crying? Um, kind of lying face down on the floor, in this, the same, you know, carpeted condo, just thinking like, wh- how did I get here? totally relate to that and there's there's something also interesting about i mean i'm going to ask you i I originally wanted to ask you what's the difference between is there a difference between men burning out women burning out but there's something you just said that resonates so deeply is you said you sobbed and there's not many men Mm -hmm. who will publicly admit that they were sobbing uncontrollably yeah yeah there is an ocean of uncried male tears sitting out there we're not supposed to do that. And, you know, your, your original question, is there a difference between male and female burnout? Symptomatically, no, feels the same. How do we get into it? I think there are differences there. And that's one of them is as men, we're taught to hold all those emotions inside. And that is too much to bear. That's, we, we just can't, we can't be healthy uh, if we only have two emotions, happy and mad. I think what's interesting about your approach to this, your book is called Expansive Intimacy, How Tough Guys Defeat Burnout. And it's this tough guys. I don't know whether it's just the way I've I've written it down, but I've put some exclamation marks, some not exclamations, a little. What's this what's this this tough guy thing we keep talking about? Yeah, there are quotes around tough guys in the subtitle. And it's because of this notion that what is a tough guy? And I interviewed a guy in the book and he talked about how he felt that his 
role in life was to just take it on the chin, no matter what, to protect his family, to provide for them, and never let anybody see that anything ever hurt him. And that that's not tough. I mean, that's that is the that's the the archetype that we've seen forever. And to be tough is has been, you know, you you just bear up, you do whatever it takes, you suck it up. And I argue that that's not really tough because if you look at statistics around things like divorce, addiction, heart disease, suicide for men, they start to skyrocket when men get into their middle years, fifties uh, in particular around suicide is a, is a real danger zone. And if you're a guy who's taking it on the chin, you're sucking it up, you're isolating, you're in burnout, and that's driving you to those conclusions that might end your life early or really compromise the quality of your life, you're not providing for your family. You're not protecting anyone. That is not tough. What is tough is to say, oh my God, I'm scared. Or I need to cry. I need somebody right now. I need help. I'm suffering. To actually reveal what's really going on, that we can't handle everything all the time. That's just not normal. I think what's interesting is that this seems to be I'm seeing a lot more about it, particularly men's mental health. I've even saw an advert, I think, on, on British TV the other day about men's mental health. And we're seeing more of it. But it's, yeah. talking about it doesn't seem to be a necessarily a new thing because we now, 20 years ago, we had Tony Soprano. And the whole mm -hmm. idea of that amazing series was him being this tough guy on the outside and then inside Dr. Melfi's office, he was not, even though he tried mm -hmm. to be. So, I mean, what's your thinking? Are, are we... Are we actually changing the way we think about mental health? Has it been a consistent, solid change? What do you think? I do think we are changing it. And I think 20 years or even 40 years is, is a blip. I mean, we're talking about 10,000 years of, of conditioning that we're supposed to, you know, go club the animal and bring it home and cook it and you know, be, be, be a tough guy that way. The socialization of manhood is so long and it, i think we're really in the infancy of waking up to saying oh we don't have to only have one side of ourselves present that we can actually be a full person and still be a man we don't have to give up the man part to bring in the part that's softer nurturing emotional however you want to describe it so it's it's just going to take a lot more repetitions i think yeah, I mean, we look at some of our heroes. I mean, one of the ones I'm thinking of is Don Draper, um, who was the sort of archetypal tough provider. But you just see mm -hmm. how he just self-sabotages at almost every single stage. So is it is it easier these days to be experiencing and talking about burnout than it was, say, 50 years ago? I think it is because it's been in the zeitgeist so much. There's been a lot of attention. And I also really think the pandemic had a big shift in that. And I've had this conversation with a few people and have asked me, like, you know, what do you think? And, and to me, there was a really important piece of the early pandemic, especially. And it was that we all faced our mortality at an age that we didn't think we had to, because we had no idea, like, am I going to go to the supermarket and I'm going to go home and be dead in two days? I had to actually think about, could I die from this mysterious thing that's floating around? And a lot of people obviously did, which was was tragic. But I think it, it created this consciousness of like, wait a second, 
why am I grinding through my life and not seeing my kids soccer games or dance performances or going out on date night with my wife or investing in friendships, all the things that make life so rich. Why am I not doing that? I could be dead tomorrow and I'll say like, yeah, I had a great ROI on my project and I bought a big boat that I never use. And I think it was this wake up moment that started to crack that conversation a little bit more wide open. A hundred percent. I think the, the, the pandemic, as, as tragic as it was for some people, for the majority of us has changed the way that we look at things, isn't it? It's, it's opened up some really important conversations and I've seen a lot more men. And, and this may also be self-selection bias. Like I've really uh, taken a deeper dive into doing work with men and with emotions and with burnout in the past couple of years. So I see people all over the place now. And I'm like, oh, great, because we need thousands of us to be helping you know, support these huge needs that have gone unmet for a long time or even unrecognized for a long time. So I'm curious, um, about 20 years ago, Gary Vee came out and he kind of had this whole hustle culture, which turned into the hustle porn. And, and it used to be uh-huh. that, well, that's what about when I started my second business. And it was like, how, you know, how are you? And you're supposed to say, oh, I'm so busy, mate. I'm so busy, man. You know, that whole idea. And has that hustle culture, is that still a thing? Is that still a contributing factor to to our burnout? For sure. I even think that the I'm so busy, even I'm burned out is a badge of honor, which is part of, I, I actually think it's really a positive development because if people are willing, if men in particular, who I'm trying to reach are willing to say, Hey, I'm wearing the burnout badge. Well, there's a, there's a a dark side to that as well. And it opens up the conversation like, yeah, I'm burned out too. You know, maybe I, maybe I actually don't want this and I can actually talk about it because it's okay to say I'm burned out. So I think there's been some, some normative behavior that's been positive, that's grown out of hustle culture and it's still going on. There's still people who are yeah, I've got to, I've got to achieve. I've got to succeed. I got to beat the next guy. I got to keep climbing the ladder. Yeah, there's the story I read about uh, one of the richest men. I think he might have been Sweden, um, and he was one of the richest men. He was the richest man in Sweden, and then um, something happened. He lost half his wealth, um, became mm-hmm. the third richest man in Sweden, and then stepped in front of a train and killed himself. And it's just, wow. you know, th- yeah. that ego. I think I, I don't know. It feels to me that ego can mm-hmm. be really, really detrimental yeah can i put a different word on that i'd use shame because i i think that's a really really deep and strong undercurrent for men and that example is a great one right i'm number one now i'm not number one i'm a loser i've failed i'm weak i'm less than and it's shameful i can't face other people until I get back on top. And we see this all over the place. That example is horrifying. We saw that with the elections in the US. You know, we had a president who couldn't admit that he lost. Why? Is it is it so shameful? And, and you look at some of the language around that, whether it's with politicians or people in business, it's like, I have to be the winner. We have to crush the competition. And if we don't, what? What does that mean for us? What does that mean about our identity? Are we are we soft? Are we weak? Are we are we a failure? I think that causes a lot of that hustle culture. So tell me, like we're talking, I'm guessing we're talking about Trump here. Um, so yeah. without 
the ego, without the hustle culture, without the Taipei personality, would he have become president, do you think? Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think it's a huge part of his brand. I think it was a huge part of the appeal because I think what he was speaking to in 2016 that caused such a groundswell was this group of men in our culture in particular who said, I want to be, I want us to have a winner like I, I want to follow this guy because I don't, I don't feel like maybe I'm winning. I think there's almost this uh, opposite effect. You know, a lot of the voters that that turned out for him are not people who maybe participate in hustle culture, but they see like the the sheen of that of having it all. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a that's a really intriguing question. It's just making me think that. There does, I mean, this is not based on evidence, it's just based on my life, is, is that the things the people who are at the top, the men at the top, seem to have kind yeah. of like a Taipei personality where I'm, I'm curious, do you think that in order to be the best at something, you have to have some element of this tough guy, I'm not burnt out, I'm fine kind of thing? Mm. It's one path. I'll say that for sure. The evidence would back it up. And... I also have seen other examples of men. I'll think of a, a, a guy that I consider an informal mentor. His name is Ari Weinzweig. He owns a business called Zingerman's or co-founded co that business in the U.S. And it's a very successful enterprise. They've created a community of businesses, about 13 companies over the years, starting with a, a deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it's become this powerhouse that has a phenomenal culture, has people, you know, uh, Ari is, is by title one of the leaders, but if you ever talk to the guy and if you ever hear him describe how he goes about that, how he's built this thing, he's like, we did it together. We create, I'm a piece of this. And this more egalitarian approach has tremendous power in terms of creating the traditional type of success that we think about. And expanding that even more, that the people who work in that organization absolutely love it. They have wonderful results because they're connected. And it's not this domineering, I'm going to drag us to success no matter what type of energy. It's a much more collaborative design. Quick announcement for all listeners. Yeah, I've got a I've got a new toy on my on my little deck thing, so I can make my voice change. Anyway, sorry. I Leanne. love it. Do it again. Hello, Leanne. Do another one. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't interrupt your podcast listening for uh, for this. We actually interrupted it to tell you about one of our new favorite podcasts. It's called Success Story. It is hosted by Scott D. Clary, and it is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features question and answer sessions and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Oh, and if you like this podcast, then I think you'll love Scott's episode in back in December, where the infamous Seth Godin talks about empowering employees. So go listen to Success Stories wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting you mentioned that, um, because I think he's mentioned in the book, uh, Bo Burlingham, Small Giants. Um, I think he's one of the stories in there. And it's funny because they're all like, the whole idea, as I'm sure you know, and uh, is that it's about 
companies decided to stay small. And the one thing yeah. she doesn't really pull out, Bo Burlingham, I think it's Bo Burlingham, the author doesn't really pull out, is yeah. that none of them seem to be driven too much by ego. They seem to be driven by community. Mm-hmm. So what would you say is yeah. the opposite of, if we say that we've got tough guy and successful over here, then what would be the opposite of successful and? What would you say the and bit is? Uh, I don't know if you were setting me up for this, but uh, I would say it's expansive intimacy. Right. And and that's that's what I wrote about. And And it's really this different way of looking at success is that if I have places everywhere in my life where I can dive into relationships that feel trusting and compassionate and and fulfilling to me, I have so much success. And that includes financially or, you know, as a a business to grow when I have that kind of team around me and I can bring all of those people up because I I work with executives all the time and so many of them are driven by, they want to create opportunities for other people. And when you create those opportunities in a way where we're, we know each other, we trust each other, we can have real honest relationships where we can share what's actually going on in our lives, then we can create something completely different and we can have the same kind of success we may decide that the goal isn't to be a trillion dollar a year company or trillion dollar market cap. We may decide to be a small giant, but I don't think that necessarily matters. I think it's more about what's the quality of that success? What are we building that supports each other? And we, we have, we have fun together. We can share the things that are scary to us, the, the challenges that we, we go through, we can do it all instead of uh, having to just be focused on just be businesslike. There seems to be a, certainly on TikTok, Instagram, that kind of thing, people talking about snowflakes. And from what I understand, the definition of snowflake is potentially someone who is saying, oh, I'm burnt out or I can't cope with this or I need a few weeks off. How does your book deal with the potential labeling of someone who's saying I'm in trouble and then their boss going, you're just a snowflake, get on with it. Yeah, that's a tough approach to take. Um, I guess what I try to invoke is empathy and compassion, that we actually take a step back from what's the circumstance going on that somebody is so upset that a person who's struggling is saying, I need to take a couple of weeks off or whatever the situation is. And to actually say, what would it be like? What's going on for that person? Why would somebody take such a drastic step as to come in and say, I need to step away from my job when I know that the stakes are perceived as high? And to really look at what are all, what are all the stakes? And can I be with that person and say, oh, okay, tell me, tell me what's happening here. I mean, that's the approach I take. It's radically different than the modern business world that has demands for stakeholders and quarterly reports and all of that. And it's not to say that taking that alternate approach isn't uncomfortable, doesn't have a short-term hit on some of those immediate results. Because if we slow things down to connect with the people in our organizations, the project might slow down. But do we take care of that person? Do we improve our retention rates? Do we make it easier to attract talent? Do we in the long term build a fabric where we have teams that are more flexible that can get things done better? I think so. So tell me, so I can properly understand you, the man who I'm talking to right now, you've given us a little bit of backstory about burnout, but what's the real reason why burnout is just your passion and what you're dedicating your life to? 
I've been coming to this realization over the last few months that my work is not actually about burnout, that my work is actually about intimacy, that as people in this modern society that's so fast and so distributed and so disconnected in so many ways, we've lost some essential parts of what makes life so rich. And burnout is a condition that I went through that got me to intimacy. Intimacy is how I got beyond my days of burnout, my years of burnout. By investing in intimate relationships across every area of my life, I started to free up the space where I, I couldn't burn out anymore. And so I know that that is, it's a, it's not even just our species that craves connection, that is wired for connection. It's part of all life. And when we are so cut off from each other, when we're isolated, we burn out. We can't sustain ourselves when we don't have social support. Study after study proves that out. So that's really like deep within me is I want connection. I was a lonely, shy kid, right? It comes from there. I didn't know how to connect with people in the world. It took me a long time to figure that out. And I know a lot of people struggle with that. And I know a lot of men in particular are told, don't show your emotional side. And that's where we connect from. That's how we build intimacy is by revealing our emotional reality. So for me, I see so much pain and suffering for men and it's unnecessary. And it's, it's, there's pain and suffering for everyone. I can speak to the male condition. So that's what I choose to do. Totally agree with you. I was, um, I was lonely, awkward child. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, and the number of times that people just say, I'll oh, just man up, you know, and it's yeah. just, I don't know what that means and I don't know how to do it. Um, right. So tell me if you, what would you like to see leaders and managers doing to help prevent or even recognize burnout? First thing is talking about it. Absolutely. The first thing I want them to be talking about is what's going on for me. Am I, am I experiencing it? What's going on in our organization? Letting it be known that this is something we can talk about, normalizing that this is real. There are so many studies out there. Some of them I think are overblown. I think Deloitte had a study that said 78% of workers were burned out. I don't think it's that dire, but I do look at studies that show 35, 38% of people being burned out. It's a normal thing, right? Let's stop the stigma around the fact that our current work cultures create conditions that aren't healthy for everyone. After, you know, beyond normalizing it, it's then actually modeling. What would it be like to be different? I'm not going to require people to respond to emails on the weekend. I'm not going to send emails myself outside of those work hours. Really simple but profound impact when a leader either does or doesn't message the team at 10 o'clock at night. If that's the way to get ahead, I'm responding at 10.02. And I'll be pissed if somebody responded at 10.01. Right? So modeling behavior having those conversations to normalize it and then understanding what do we need to to then do? How do we need to shift the culture? How do we make it so that we have a workplace where we can meet our goals, that we can still achieve the business objectives that we've set out and fulfill the mission that we have? How can we do it in a way that our people are first? 
So if we go back, say, 15 years, then sort of our peer groups would tend to be, for men, might be people who you play sports with, you go to the pub with, you work with, etc. Yeah. So our influence from our peer group was relatively small. You know, we might only have sort of 20... I mean, what there is that famous joke about the mo- the least believable thing about the Bible is a man in his 30s has got 12 close friends, which I always always makes me <laughs> juggle. But I think my, my question is around, so that was our influence, was our friends. Now yeah. we're influenced by social media where there are not only thousands more people who we probably experience this on a day, but people who who have been given, attributed this status of like, I'm, I'm using one particular guy who, Personally, I cannot stand a guy called Andrew Tate. You may not know him, a British uh, MMF fighter who's been banned from Instagram for misogynistic uh, comments and stuff. But he had such a following. So what are we going to do about this whole social media thing where our influence is coming from not just our social, not just our peers, but everyone in the world and someone who can shout loudest? I wish I had a good answer for that one. That's a that's a genie that's out of the bottle in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I would say follow Patty. Uh, another MMA fighter who had a, I don't know what his last name is, um, but there was a viral video of his where he talked about he had a a mate who had committed suicide the week before a big match that he had. And at the end of the match, he was given the, the microphone to say a couple of words and he decided to speak about how lonely men are and how Um, you know, how tragic it was and how he wished that his friend had just reached out to him and talked. And so I don't know, I I try to avoid social media for the most part. I I spend a little bit of time on a couple of the common platforms. I'm on LinkedIn a lot because I like the discourse there. And I think it's recognizing there's great information to be had there. I get exposure to so many different ideas and I, I find plenty of time to be on media one-to-one with people. I have probably four conversations a week with different people who I either have long-standing relationships with or I'm just getting to know. This afternoon, I have a I have a call with seven men that we meet once a month on Zoom for 90 minutes. And we just talk about whatever. <laughs> and oftentimes, it's really profound. It's about our sex lives. It's about money. It's about, you know, anything. And And I think taking the risk to say, hey, I'm interested in this person. I want to talk to them. I want to establish a relationship. Go ahead and keep using technology. We're going to do it. But how do you make conscious choices of, am I going down rabbit holes on social media? Or am I actually connecting with another human being in a conversation? I don't have, I have a lot of friends. I don't, I have a bunch of friends that I've never met. (laughs) But they're amazing friends. I've talked with them about things that I've never even talked with my dad about. It's a whole other story. <laughs> when you're writing, when most people write books, they seem to have like an ideal reader in their mind when, when they're writing their book. Can you describe yeah. who would be the ideal person who should go out there and buy your book right now? Yeah, he owns a business that he probably founded. And that business has grown to a point that he's feeling really successful in the traditional way. And yet it's consuming him. He doesn't get enough time with his kids. His spouse is probably saying, hey, I want more from you. And he's probably also starting to run into some challenges in the business because his burnout is now contagious and it's affecting the other people that he works for. And he's starting to see that he's plateaued in the business. Um, so it's, it's this place of like, I got really successful and oh shit, it's not that successful. I don't have all the things that I wanted. I'm not actually living the dream. 
It's funny you say that. Do you feel that sometimes with, particularly with men, that you have to go and buy the boat, you have to go and buy the new BMW to prove that you're successful to other men? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then I think eventually we get to that point of diminishing returns where we realize like, I can't get a fancy enough car because somebody else just got the Maserati, right? And like that, that race to the top is a fallacy. There is no top. <laughs> it just keeps climbing. And so we're always going to find ourselves wanting more. And eventually we realize like, this is too much. Like I'm putting in so much effort for status and I don't have friends anymore. <laughs> my relationship with my wife is, isn't good. I don't know my kids. You know, my, my colleagues are, you know, don't enjoy it. Like it's the relationships. It's the intimacy in our lives that ultimately defines our success. Yeah. There's always someone with a bigger cigar, isn't there? Whether that's a... Yeah, as Sigmund Freud might say. <laughs> so before, I've, I've just got one more question after this. Um, so... Yeah. You wrote an article which you called the F word about a year ago. Do you remember it? Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, resonated, resonated with me. Tell me more uh, about that. Yeah. The F word that I think we don't consider to be dangerous is fine. I'm fine. Hey, bud, how you doing? I'm fine. Except you see the delivery of it, right? You watch the energy behind when that guy says to you, I'm fine. And you realize it's not fine. Then what do you do? Do you actually say, no, really, how are you? And I've really started to take to that question when somebody asked me how you're doing, and I've been practicing this for, for a while now, is answering honestly. And sometimes I catch myself answering, I'm fine. And then I realize, hold on, let me give you the real answer. And it's a huge step in, towards vulnerability. It's that revealing of you know what, I'm not fine. And it, it totally feeds into what I write about in the book around shame, which was not a topic I expected to explore in the book, but I realized like, that's the undercurrent. That's what's keeping men, putting men in burnout, keeping them there and holding them back from intimacy. And I'm fine is one of the code words that we use to, to hide, our, hide whatever we might feel shame about. Just as a quick aside, my business partner and I are also like best mates, which causes all kinds of problems. Um, but we have a, um, there's a bit in Pulp Fiction. I don't know if you've seen the film. Uh -huh. There's a bit where, where, yeah. uh, uh, where Ving Rhames um, is in the back with Butch and Zed. Um, and, so, uh -huh. but, and so then Bruce Willis says, are you okay? And he goes, I'm pretty fucking far from okay. And that's, that's <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. but I think, and quite often I will, if I text Chris and he's having a bad day, I'll say, you okay? And I'll go, I'm pretty fucking far from okay. And that's our way of saying it's been a shit day without having to say it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Like finding the ways that we can get away from I'm fine and into what's real. And eventually when we get into a relationship with somebody where we've shared enough, we open up the aperture and we can be like, dude, I am crushed today. I am grieving whatever it is. And now it's like, oh, I don't have to hold that. I, I, I got to share it. Oftentimes that's all we need is just the release and somebody else to hear it and know. And be like, yeah, I'm thinking of you, buddy. Cool, I feel better. Brilliant. Is there any question that I should have asked you that I haven't? Yeah. Um, and it would be about what, what I've done outside of my work life, the, the traditional professional career that has helped me through burnout. And so if that's the question... I'll go ahead and answer it. Improv comedy. 
And that's one form of combining risk-taking and creativity. So it's not that it's a prescription that if you're burned out, you should go take an improv comedy class and then keep doing those for years and end up being on stage and do shows. And that's, that's what I did. And it's been tremendous. But the key was I got into a place where I could take risks about things that mattered, which is communication, relationship with other people. And I started to learn all these new skills that were fun and creative and brought me joy in my life and also had some gravity to them. Like I had to deal with anxiety and fear and all the things that come up when we take creative risk. So I would just encourage for, you know, to really paint a full color picture of the life that we get to lead. Where are you finding creative risk taking in your life? Whether it's improv comedy, playing in a rock band, you know, being in your wood shop, building stuff, like there's all sorts of ways to do it. Um, so I just, I think that's something that um, adds a little bit more texture to the conversation. I love it. And I suppose, I mean, what, I watch a lot of comedians and love it. And I think that it gives you the stage, literal and figurative uh, stage to be able to say things that are serious without actually people going, oh shit, are you okay? You know, kind of things. And Right. Exactly. Yeah. And as I, I learned from my first improv teacher, um, we play through a thin veil. That character of mine that comes up on screen and feels awkward and anxious, that's probably me, <laughs> right? The audience thinks it's fun and, it's, and we're making fun with it. Um, but there's some truth in it. Absolutely. Jim, you've been absolutely fantastic. I've learned lots. I am definitely going on Amazon and buying your book as soon as we get off this. Ah, um, and um, yeah, we'll, um, you know, you've just given us so much, I think, so much to talk about and so much to talk around. And I'm, I'm just so grateful. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I love what you're doing. When I saw the, the name Truth Lies in Workplace Culture, I said, oh, this is going to be exciting and, uh, and, a, and a fun conversation. And, and it's it's been that and more. So thank you. I think Alan and Jim have given us a lot to reflect on there. And if you'll indulge me for a few more minutes, I'd, I'd like to share some of, some of mine. I wonder sometimes whether we're so concerned with our own agendas that we're isolating others potentially villainizing others. Middle-aged men today are really in this strange place between two very different generations. The pre-war, silent, strong type and the post-war, open, honest, progressive generation. And on top of this, middle-aged men or middle-aged, it is a time for everyone when, you know, the, the weight, the impact of our previous decisions really reveal themselves and making any change at this point can come at a really high cost financially socially there's not always that time to recover that means that people feel trapped under the choices they've made earlier the choices they have available to them now and that's what seriously compromises mental health this conversation has also helped me reflect on the question am i playing an active role in reinforcing gender stereotypes and social expectations of what it means, in inverted commas, to be a man. Listening to this conversation between Al and Jim really gave me a refreshed perspective in terms of the social and psychological pressures that he is under. And I'm not sure I ever really understood 
how much I unconsciously rely on him to be tough. And while I do feel a renewed sense of gratitude for him serving that role for me equally, I'm motivated to do better in holding, holding a space for him to use our words, be very far from okay. For me, this conversation was a really timely reminder of what we can do and how we can better support the men in our lives. It's okay to not be okay. If you'd like more information or support based on this week's episode, please do check out all of the information and links in the show notes. To talk you through them, first of all, our incredible guest, Jim Young. Uh, You'll be able to find him on LinkedIn at The Centred Coach. Uh, Jim's book um, is called Expansive Intimacy, How Tough Guys Defeat Burnout. And we will leave a link to, to both Jim's LinkedIn and his book in the show notes. I'll also mention there a comedian um, called Rob Delaney who wrote a really powerful book called A Heart That Works about his experiences losing his son. Um, Rob Delaney's also done some incredibly open and honest interviews, so I would definitely consider um, checking that out. Again, we'll leave a, a link in the show notes. Jim was also very generous to share some other resources with us. As you would have heard, he is a huge proponent of close community, especially men's groups. Um, a few resources that he recommends for those who want to share deep, meaningful bonds with a community of men. He recommends organisations such as Every Man and the Mankind Project. For men who are feeling isolated in their business lives, he suggests organisations like YPO and Vistage. There are also many dedicated coaches who offer men's group experiences, including Jamie Robbins in the UK, Ken Mossman in the US, and of course, Jim himself. We will leave all the links to those resources in the show notes. If you're in the UK, you can also check out the Men's Health Forum, which offers information, services and treatments for men experiencing mental health challenges. We'll also leave a link to the Men and Boys Coalition. That's a network of organisations, academics, journalists, professionals and leaders that are committed to highlighting and taking action on gender-specific issues that affect men and boys. There's also the Black Men's Consortium, which is dedicated to improving black men's mental health. There's also some information for a couple of talking services in the show notes. The first is called the Mankind Initiative. Uh, This is uh, support specifically for males who are victims of domestic abuse. And secondly, the Samaritans, if you are feeling in distress or despair, including suicidal feelings, please consider giving them a call. We will leave both telephone numbers in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and holding a safe space for this very important conversation. Al and I will be back next week on the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast. Please do consider subscribing, leaving a review and getting in touch. We'll see you next week.